Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe, and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, GC Senior Director in the GC office in London. Today I'm here with Elizabeth Beale and Molly Brennan from the GC Sustainability and Climate Change team. We've just run a policy workshop on the question of the future of food, and this podcast is an opportunity to take stock of that discussion and some of the interesting ideas that it was batting about. Elizabeth, I want to start with you with the question of what we mean when we say the future of food. That's true. I mean, when you hear that term, it's being thrown around a lot lately, and it could be anything from crickets to robots in the kitchen. Um, But what it really boils down to from a policy perspective is thinking about where food will be coming from and how we'll be getting it, what we'll be eating, and how we'll be eating it. Thinking about these three questions and what the possible scenarios look like, not just for five years, but looking out to 2050, is what's currently driving the policy debate around the future of food. And presumably that's partly about market choices, it's partly about what consumers want, but it's also presumably very heavily impacted by a growing recognition that there is a big set of questions about sustainability at the heart of our diet and the way we eat. M- Molly, what's what strikes you as being the key things to understand about what's pushing this debate along and, and maybe why it appears to have accelerated in terms of momentum, particularly over the last the last year or so? Yeah, I think um, consumers have played a large part in the last year or so in driving this debate. And I think if you look at it in comparison to plastics, it's really um, kind of rivaled that as a consumer trend. We've seen so many people taking up um, flexitarian diets. Um, well, hang on, before you, just, just tell us a little bit about why you think, or describe for us the dynamic in the plastics debate. I mean, what, what, what's, what's, what ultimately has put plastic at the centre of the public policy debate in the way that it so clearly has in the last 18 months sure. or so? Um, so it's widely considered that, um, that David Attenborough had a huge effect with the Blue Planet series and kind of mobilised public attention. And kind of on the backdrop to that, there was the China's ban of waste plastics, which kind of made a market impact for um, countries more broadly. And I think that all sort of come together um, and brought forward various legislation. We've seen um, waste plastics integrated into the Basel Convention, the EU Circular Economy Package. Uh, last weekend, the G20 environmental ministers made a, a legislation on that as well. So I think it's been mobilised by consumer attention and that's filtered through into legislation. But I think the question of diet is a lot more volatile than that of plastics. Um, and we've seen that in um, the US with AOC's Green New Deal, which was pulled apart mainly for implications for the livestock sector. And also in the UK, where the Greens have backed a meat tax, um, the then, at the time, the um, Minister for Energy and Clean clean Growth, Claire Perry, um, said it was the worst sort of nanny state ever. And so I think that sort of volatility in politics means that it could be harder to translate into action in uh, policy and regulation. But clearly there is something going on at the level of consumer attitudes to uh, food, consumer attitudes to meat, Mm. um, meat eating. Uh, I mean, what do you think's driving that? Is it just just one of these periodic cultural shifts? Or why why do you think consumers are suddenly 
thinking about things like meat consumption in a new way? Um, I think there's a lot more attention on the health aspect. So a lot of people are seeing uh, reducing meat and also looking at what you know, the what ingredients are in the things they're eating as a way of you know reducing non-communicable diseases. Um, I think also there's a wider attention on supply chains, which has been um, brought about by the attention on palm oil. But we've had we've had scares about the food supply chain and particularly maybe the meat supply chain before. We had the horse meat issue uh, seven eight years ago. What's different now? Um, I can jump in here. I think one of the differences is that the horse meat um, scandal of years ago was one that hit uh, lower income consumers, whereas what you're seeing now is the shift to more plant-based diets is largely a trend that's happening with higher income uh, portion of the population. And so the differences in what's driving that and what how that translates into then policy shifts is one that you could break down as well. Right, so that's, that, that's, that's chiefly about companies chasing an incredibly important segment of the economic market. Definitely. Okay, and so po- public policymakers are responding to this. Just give us a sense of how they're responding. Yes, yeah, so as Molly said, there's you know consideration of a meat tax, but I think as as Molly said, this is a much more difficult regulatory area to to climb, um, and so I do think that passing any sort of meat tax is probably very far away. But there are other regulatory changes um, in the EU, EU and elsewhere that that Molly will jump in on. Yeah, um, I think. In the future of food generally, I think there's a tension between driving innovation in policy and also maintaining um, health and welfare standards. And you see this particularly between the EU and the US. The EU is generally quite conservative, where the US is, um, well, they generally regulate on a matter of um, outcome, where we regulate on a matter of process. Right. And chlorinated chicken is an example of that, whereas we don't have, the exam- we don't have an issue with the final kind of product and the... And the um, safety of that but we actually have an issue with how it's got to that point Um, so I think in the future this will become more of an issue and we'll you know um, sign where the market will kind of grow and because we've seen how that's happened in um, labelling of products so in 2017 I think the EU um, passed legislation meaning that milk based, um, sorry plant based milks or now called drinks couldn't be called milk to um, avoid any confusion over the nutritional content of the milk um, drink. <laughs> and Why is that a problem for innovation? It's a problem for innovation in that it's attacking, well, it might have an impact on consumer interest. And uh, it, if consumer interest is to deplete, there's less of a need to innovate and make these new products. Okay, so the argument would be that allowing a vegan sausage to be called a, sorry, a vegan tube to be called a sausage, or a veggie burger to be called a burger, or an almond milk drink to be called milk, is essentially helping consumers make the transition. If you take the labels away, you make it harder for them to make that transition in a comfortable way. Definitely. Well, and it's already they're already recognised terms. Yeah. So then, if you start saying, "Oh, don't you? Would you like to buy these veggie discs or veggie tubes?" People will say, "What is that? It's not, it doesn't have the same." But isn't this um, just being driven by defensive interests in the agricultural sector? Yeah. Yes. So it's just protectionist for the you know dairy and meat industry. Um, so it's a question of whether that will 
prevail. But you could also translate the same debate to new things like crickets. So you want to encourage innovation to develop cricket flour or cricket-based foods. But at the same time, you want to make sure that quality and safety standards are being met. So it's finding that balance too. But I mean, there are, of course, many in the US and elsewhere who have argued in the past that the EU's approach to the precautionary principle can be a check on innovation. Do you actually think that is a real concern when we think about innovation in the future of food? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, another example would be in genetically modified um, products and also genetically engineered, which is like a new way of modifying um, a, a cell, which is a lot more precise. And so if you think of the Impossible Burger, which is now Burger King, that's from genetically engineered soy um, to create a protein, which is very similar to that in meat. Um, it would have to be very difficult to get Impossible Burger in the UK because of our kind of backlash against genetically modified products. So the Impossible Burger is available in the US but not in not continental Europe or the UK? In the EU. Okay. Um, I'm sure that we'll be kind of making moves in that direction. Okay. Elizabeth, one of the things I've heard you talking about a lot uh, is the, the way in which we have to think about these kinds of sustainability questions around food as being on a on a spectrum, and we've moved along that spectrum in the last few years. Just tell us a bit about what you mean by that. Sure. I mean, it's some. Sometimes I think there's a lot of hype and excitement around the you know the new next best thing. So whether it's going to be if we all start eating crickets, that then sustainability issues around food will be solved, um, and that we'll you know have a much better world in terms of climate change, etc. But I think the, the concern is that it's easy to get excited about new options, but actually each of those new options carry their own environmental and social considerations. So whether you look at hydroponics and energy use, or you look at um, other new solutions like the Impossible Burger and what that means in terms of you know where they're getting the soy from and what the issues around deforestation are there. So just as a caution to say, it is true that as, they, as new solutions and new innovative ways of producing food come about, there are um, potentially some issues solved on the sustainability spectrum, but that there's each of them brings their own issues to address and really compare on their own terms. But that's, very, that's really interesting because that suggests that some of the ways in which the sustainability debate has advanced in the past, so perhaps the big push over the last deco decade or so to focus more on local production over global production, um, or even um, plant-based over non-plant-based, actually can end up being a distraction from some of the bigger, more fundamental questions about whether these, are, these options are genuinely sustainable or not. Yes, definitely. So it's not possible, I mean, it, it's just very important to ensure that we keep in mind the bigger questions, like climate change, like biodiversity, and that with any solution, whether it's global or local, or whether it's plant-based or meat-based, that you're looking at each of the issues that come about with any type of production. And do you think there's a risk there for, well, I mean, both companies and policymakers of being too narrow in the way they're assessing these choices when they're thinking about how to make themselves sustainable? And in fact, there's a risk that they don't, they don't appreciate the way in which what looks like the right next move in terms of sustainability, either for a company or policymakers, actually ends up being undermined as the debate moves on and we start focusing on some of the underlying supply chain or calorie 
consumption or environmental footprint issues? I mean, I think there is a risk always to get, as I said at the beginning, to get caught up with the hype. I mean, we've seen this with palm oil where, you know, there's been a huge backlash to palm oil, but actually there is sustainable palm oil in many parts of the world. There is unsustainable palm oil. So there is a risk of letting just one product be the enemy and rather than looking at the real issues that need to be addressed and what the right policy measures are to get at those issues rather than just focusing on the next newest product or the next newest uh, thing to ban. Well, you, you, you make the reference to the UK, what you implied there, maybe a, a, a sliver of light between the approach of the UK on some of these precautionary principle issues and the rest of the EU or the EU as a whole. Do you think there's, a, there's an extent to which it, 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 in a post-Brexit UK we start to see different public policy choices in this area? I think um, potentially it could be seen as an opportunity to diverge from the EU in some aspects where um, the UK might like to go go further. Um, this could be maybe um, in using pesticides or reducing the use of pesticides. Um, we've seen already that the UK have kind of, with the livestock sector, championed um, high welfare standards, high safety standards. And so this might be something where they look to go further and have kind of a higher um, regulatory uh, standards in relation to that mm. than other. EU. But presumably higher stewardship or sustainability standards aren't necessarily a problem for trade with the EU. A different approach to things like authorising innovative technologies does potentially have implications for trade. Yeah. Um, I think that UK remains in a similar vein to the EU as quite conservative on these issues and I can't imagine that it would see a rapid change in kind of wanting to adopt um, you know, genetic engineering for crops or, you know, creating meat alternatives. And is there, a, I mean, clearly there's a lot going on at the EU level in terms of uh, sustainability, the circular economy, but do, you, do either of you detect any sense at the EU level that there is a need to rethink the relationship between regulation and innovation for food? I mean, as a biased American, <laughs> I would say probably yes. Um, I think it's a moment to think about. So again, you, you mean you think there should be? Yes. Do you think there is? Uh, I think that there could be growing appetite because as there is more interest in addressing climate change and really rethinking how we're doing things, you've seen this with the circular economy, I think there is maybe more openness to thinking about, okay, let's get back to the big questions and maybe on some things that we've been historically opposed to, uh, could we address them if we, could we address climate change if we're willing to be more innovative on GMOs, for example? And what's the, what's the vehicle for these kinds of questions in the next European policy cycle, to the extent there is one? Well, the first vehicle will be with the CAP reform, with the Central uh, Common Agricultural Policy uh, reform, which you've seen has been highly contentious um, and will be picked up again um, with the new commission coming in and but how do these future of food questions play out in cap reform? So some of or the reallocation of cap priority spending. Things sure. Like that. So some of them are around are on how uh, farmers use and manage the land. So what sort of environmental and public goods they're producing. So whether that's soil quality or water quality. But then they also play out in different ways in terms of how food can be labeled, how food can be marketed. Um, so it covers a huge range of things and choice of what's given priority in, in budget and 
what thresholds you need to meet in order to access funds. Okay, this is a podcast about the future of food, so I'm going to I'm going to challenge you both now. Ten years from now, what's the most important change we're going to have seen in the way we manage our diets? Um, okay, I'll start off on that. I think uh, there will be a reduction in the amount of meat that we're eating generally, particularly um, red and processed meats. I think a greater variation in the sort of grains we're eating. I think right now there's about six grains that the, the world is predominantly eating on a day-to-day basis. So I think kind of broadening that out. Um, and I think provenance will be a lot more important and a lot in, in the way that we're buying um, and we'll be producing a lot more things close to home and eating locally. I would agree with that, eating locally. So I think you're going to be seeing a lot more people trying to grow their own food, whether that's in gardens or rooftops or what not. But then at the same time, you're going to see a lot more eating on the go. Um, and what that means in terms of uh, dark kitchens and the production of food just for delivery, but that that's done in a way that's much more sustainable, using products that are grown within cities, etc. Um, so I would say local and on the go are going to be two key trends in the next 10 years. And in, those, in the changes you just described, the balance between consumer preference as a driver and public policy as a driver, both, little of both? much more consumer driven? I think it will be much more consumer driven. I think policy will come in as a afterthought. It does feel at the moment that policy is largely coming in to reinforce consumer choices. Great. You can read more on this subject from Elizabeth and Molly on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.co. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.